From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. You're with Brian McLean and Steve Hook and State of the Nation on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, launching into Hour 2 of State of the Nation live right here at today's News Talk. TNTradio.live is that website. Hello to you in the interactive live chat room over there. Thanks for being with us. And if you're watching on X.com, hello to you as well. You'll note on the TNTx.com account, uh, our live stream is pinned at the top of the page. So if you're surfing X, uh, you can always go to TNT, Today's News Talk over there, and catch that live stream or on our website, of course, embedded on that front page, uh, YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble. All the good spots and, of course, all the podcasting networks. If you miss anything and you prefer the audio format, we've got it all available for you. Find all that stuff at the website. I'm Brian McLean. They call me Hesher sometimes. I'm broadcasting out of Central Texas here for State of the Nation, along with Steve Hook, who's broadcasting from the Jersey Shore. Steve, that was a banger first hour. Things go quickly over here in this format, and I love it. Um, Yeah, and we got a great hour lined up here. Yeah, yeah, you're not kidding. It was a banger uh, first hour. I agree. And there's a lot happening, man. I mean, uh, you know, we've touched on everything from uh, the border to WEF, which, of course, the big Davos thing going down now. And uh, it's, it really does feel like we're sitting on, on the precipice here of some world change, doesn't it, Hesher? Doesn't it feel like we're, we're kind of all being tested? What kind of society do you want to live in going forward it seems like everybody seems to be kind of on that knife's edge and we'll uh we'll see how it shakes out yeah we uh often do feel like rats in some sort of labyrinth here steve but we're gonna find the center of the labyrinth per usual here on state of the nation now i got to bring this up president trump appeared in court yesterday as e Jean carroll testified in a trial where the jury will decide how much trump has to pay for his so-called defamatory statements about her. And we've got Judge Lewis Kaplan, a Clinton appointee, uh, previously ruled that Trump is liable for defamatory statements he made about E. Jean Carroll after she accused him of rape. So, you know, this has been an ongoing uh, thing here. She wrote a book about it. Here's here's the interesting part, though. Here's the, the big update in this case, as far as I'm concerned. Carroll made a stunning admission under questioning about her Trump media tour. She said she did about four TV interviews and several podcasts to promote her book. And she was asked by uh, Roberta Kaplan, uh, did you promote your book? Switching gears, sorry. And E. Jean Carroll said, yeah, I did four TV interviews and four or five podcasts. She was then asked what she talked about. And E. E. Jean Carroll admitted in court that the Lincoln Project's George Conway, a toxic (laughs) never-Trumper, convinced her to sue Trump. Isn't that interesting? Here's how that went. Uh, Kaplan said, when did you decide to sue? E. Jean Carroll replies, I was at a party with George Conway. He took me aside. He had an iPad. He explained the difference between a criminal case and a civil case. He took me through the steps. He said he could suggest an attorney. (laughs) So there you go. I wonder if this was uh, one of Reed Hoffman's parties. (laughs) I can't help but... Uh, wondering uh, if if Reed Hoffman is uh, involved here tangentially after our last discussion with the flyovers. Yeah, I, I, th- this whole Carol case is so bizarre. Here, here's a, first of all, they make sure to seat it in front of a 
judge and jury that is very, very, uh, I would, I wouldn't say sympathetic towards her so much as just absolutely apoplectic towards Trump. So they, they seen it in a, in a trial where they know they're going to get a, a, a guilty verdict. She couldn't remember the day. She couldn't remember the date. Hell, she couldn't even remember the year that this happened. And yet Trump was still found guilty. So I don't know how you prove a negative. Uh, you can't do that. It's it's like, you know, asking somebody, when did you stop beating your wife? But that's essentially what they did to Trump. They rang him up on this. And now she's saying that she, her book's not selling worth a damn. And guess what? It's back to the well, $10 million this time. Uh and the fact that George Conway, the ex-husband of Kellyanne Conway, uh, was the conduit for this comes as absolutely no shock. And that's shocking to even hear myself say, because it would have, <laughs> you know, but there you go. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, and Trump's lawyer, uh, Alina Haba, said Trump's statements in defense of false accusations of rape have given E. Jean Carroll more fame than she could have ever dreamed of. She said, quote, She's looking for you to give her a windfall because some people on social media said mean things about her. But in today's day and age, the internet always has something to say, and it's not always going to be nice to end that quote. Uh, so, yeah, um, this this is a pretty amazing case here, Steve. So I'm glad to have seen this information come out just so that people understand the way that these sort of uh, cases, what the nexus point is, because... Uh, this is not a good look. Hey, are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? We'd love it if you'd let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or even a comment, whatever, on Facebook, Gab, Gitter, YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, all the platforms. We need to get you out there and get you on those platforms, dropping comments, dropping links. We really appreciate that. So do follow TNT on X and Facebook and all the places. Help us break through those algorithms as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk TNT. Going 360 on the headlines. It's really well-balanced conversation. Today's News Talk Radio TNT. Welcome back to State of the Nation. <laughs> I'm Steve Hook. That's Brian Asher. We're welcome. Uh, very happy to welcome to our program once again, Andrew Langer, who we haven't seen. And Andrew, it's been at least a week, brother. But uh, <laughs> I think it's been a week. Yeah. And what a week uh, it's been. Yes. No kidding. I mean, no <laughs> kidding. Uh, and and it's it's getting crazier by the day. I mean, what what what's on top of your mind right now? What are you what are you well, focused let me, on? Let me tell you something. I've had a couple of really interesting things happen in the last week to sort of to to lend into this uh, issue of where things stand. So you guys know that I do a lot of work in the regulatory sphere, the administrative state. It's of great interest to me. Um, and we've been so last week we had the situation where the National Park Service pulled the they were proposing to remove the statue of William Penn from Penn's own home where he had uh, uh, drafted the the Declaration of Principles for 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 Pennsylvania. They pulled that back. The public outcry was so severe they pulled that back. This so, and and they did so while I was in the middle of writing my comments on this. This is my point here. So fast forward to this week, I'm working on an issue having to do with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was putting forth a proposal that was essentially both fascistic and crony capitalist in nature, essentially finding a way to monetize our natural resources and give them over to hedge funds who would then turn around and sell credits to average American people. It's a whole big convoluted thing. 
literally in the middle of writing my comments yesterday that were due today, the uh, the SEC pulled the proposal. And here's my point in all of this, that the pushback from Americans is getting to the point where the Biden administration can't run for cover anymore. They can't. They they are being forced to uh, find limits to their woke agenda as long as we are voicing our concerns about these things. Now, they're going to continue to push at uh, at uh, doing whatever they can to expand the administrative state. And this gets into what you're talking about in terms of Davos and the World Economic Forum. But this was a stunning turn of events yesterday. I didn't think there was any way possible that the SEC was going to pull back from this proposal, and yet they did. Hey, Andrew, that kind of reminds me of the disinformation board. I was absolutely blown away right. at the backlash to the disinformation board with uh, the the toxic Mary, Mary Poppins, Poppins that they had, <laughs> they had in charge of that one. Um, so I think you might be on to something here. Um, and with regards to the Davos crowd, we had our colleague Lynn Shaw on earlier, and she was talking about how um, some some organizations like Heritage Foundations, for example, and other organizations that she works with um, that, you know, uh, watchdog human trafficking issues have been invited to Davos. And we spent most of that segment trying to like war game out. Why does Davos want outlets like this here? And on top of that, there's a there's a ricochet effect because the, the people, many uh, conservatives, um, are now entrenched in ID, identity politics so deeply that when they see a maneuver like that and an organization like that says, I don't know why we're being invited, but we'll talk to anyone who will hear it, you know, then they get backlash from their some of their conservative readers. What, what do you think about all that? Is well, this PR? I think, listen, I think there's some of it's PR, but I think some of this is also a recognition by the elite crowd that the jig is up in many ways. I'm not sure we can even use that phrase anymore. But the but the point is is that is that folks are noticing. Um, you know, I just had this conversation with uh, Dr. Shea Bradley Farrell, who is with the Counterpoint Institute in in D.C. about what is happening in terms of not just in Hungary pushing back against the EU, but in Germany and elsewhere pushing back against the woke agenda and the EU uh, the EU mandates, many of which are being driven by Davos. I think they see the uh, the election of Javier Malay in Argentina as a symbol of something uh, fundamentally changing on the ground. And as much as they want to scream and yell that there is the march of authoritarianism around the world, they, they, they know that on the ground, people are saying, well, wait a minute, if you're shrinking the size of government and you're making me more free, that seems to be the opposite of, uh, of, uh, of authoritarianism. That is, I don't want to call it libertarianism because I think libertarianism is an overused word these days and almost has no meaning. But the bottom line is there is empowerment of individuals going on around the world and the elites are concerned about this. So clearly they think that they need to hear more directly. Maybe, listen, to be play the cynic, maybe they think they can co-opt these folks and maybe some of them can be co-opted. Uh, but the reality is that, uh, that uh, uh, the impulse of the world is still towards freedom and not towards authoritarianism. Well, you mentioned Javier Millet, and Javier Millet basically dressed them down yesterday, right, right to their face, which was interesting to see. I was shocked that Geert Wilders wasn't there, uh, you know, <laughs> tagging in and going in and saying, "My turn." And by the way, here's another reason why you guys suck. Um, so, <laughs> if the jig is truly up, and 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 people realize that, you know, you guys had had a pretty, you know, you had a pretty long fuse, but it's pretty short now. There's not much time left for you here. Your 15 minutes is almost up, yet they're still there, 
Andrew. I don't think that they're going to back away from this globalist uh, power grab that they they envision. Uh, maybe they're just sensing let a me, mood change. What do you think? Let me be a little bit more cynical here as what I just said. I just was very optimistic. But let me let me be a little let me play the cynic for a second, which is that most of these elitists know that the bureaucracies in these countries are now so expansive that they can expand almost on autopilot. And so, you know, that's how you control people. I had just had a conversation with Ryan Young at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and he told me that they now calculate, or the Mercatus Center in, in, in Arlington has calculated that there are 1.5 million separate regulatory mandates on the books for Americans. That's power that can be used against individuals. And this is part of what was happening in the Supreme Court yesterday with the, with the arguments over the Chevron Doctrine, right? The arguments over the Chevron Doctrine are about reining in the administrative state so that it can't be used expansively willy-nilly against individual rights. But what the, what the elites know is that as much as the Supreme Court can do, there are already these mandates that are on the books and they can, they can expand them in ways that we are simply not noticing. And that's a problem here. They, there's, there are so many avenues of power that are out there that it's next to impossible to push back on all of them. And so they could bring Malay in and he will dress them down and rightly so. And maybe they'll make some changes uh, cosmetically. But on the other hand, they also know that they, they, they are thoroughly uh, embedded. The power is thoroughly embedded in the system. It's like whack-a-mole. Yeah, Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and this idea of bureaucracy over uh, you know, constitutional rights and free markets is is huge. And I'm glad you brought up, you know, that they kind of lean on this being on autopilot now. They very much do. Um, you know, and you mentioned Germany also. Uh I saw a huge, huge, like Netherlands style pushback in Germany this week. Uh, over their their moves towards a green agenda. I mean, they're, they're facing uh, basically a, a citizen revolt over there right now. Do you think that's indicative of what we're talking about here in America as well? 100%. I mean, it, it's a situation. Listen, I'm, I don't know if I've ever used this phrase with you guys. I have an aphorism that I like to use, which is that the most well-intentioned policies eventually bump up against very real realities. Whereas my father says, there are many roads to utopia, however, almost traverse the surface of the earth. Essentially, it means that you can have, let's assume for a moment that that the, the goals of these people are benign, right? That they're not trying to control people. The problem is at the end of the day, their unintended consequences impact real people and they harm real people. And so whether it's putting in electric vehicle mandates in the US and having these cold snaps in the winter where people can't charge their cars or enacting uh, mandates in, in, uh, in the Netherlands which drive farmers off their lands or the same thing in Germany. All of these things are all tied together. You impact real people in real ways. They're going to make their voices heard. Yeah. And, and, and not only that, but I mean, if we were just talking earlier to Jonathan Emord and we were talking about the Iowa caucus and what shocked a lot of the punditry class was that the number one issue for most people in Iowa was the, was what was going on at the Southern border. Sure. So open open uh, border policies is is kind of the coin of the realm of the World Economic Forum. That's what they want. Right. They don't want borders anywhere. And that's not playing well for them. Then you talk about the green movement and the farmers in Germany and the Netherlands. That's not playing well. So maybe they're just trying to play nice to kind of put a, a kinder, gentler face on, uh, you know, one world order. 
Here is the, <laughs> the reality. The reality is that when the left says that they want to do something, that is a long-term goal that you can bank on. Very rarely do they pull back from, from that, and they will use any means possible. So whether it's the issue of the electric vehicle mandate or getting rid of the Electoral College or expanding the Supreme Court, these are all in the United States, or enacting a global green agenda or enacting open borders in Europe or maintaining open borders in Europe. These are the things that the, when they when they say they want to do these things, they are going to try to get them by any means necessary. And it may take them 50, 60, 70 years, but they're they're gonna they're gonna get there. I mean, listen, this is something like something out of the plot of some Marvel comic book movie, you know, Hydra is born in World War II, and then it you know comes to fruition really in terms of their global dominance in the in the 2010s. I mean that's the long game that we're talking about here. Yeah, there you go. They, you know, what I hear there is they're like rust; they never sleep, uh, yes. or they're like cancer; they metastasize. Anyway, Andrew Langer, thank you very much, as always, brother, for joining us. Director always. of Center for Regulatory Freedom at CPAC Foundation, also the host of the Lunch Hour podcast and co-host of Andrew and Jerry Save the World. Find him on the andrewlangershow.com. Andrew, as always, brother, thank you so much. We'll look forward to doing it again, maybe next week. Hopefully next week, guys. I'll talk to you later on. You got it. You're watching State of the Nation on today's News Talk. TNT. TNT's Bruce de Torres. The Who's proposed treaty will increase man-made pandemics by Merrill Nass. Just a minute about this. This report is designed to help readers think about some big topics. How to really prevent pandemics and biological warfare. How to assess proposals by the Who and its members for responding to pandemics and whether we can rely on our health officials to navigate these areas in ways that make sense and will help the population. populations. We start with the history of biological arms control and rapidly move to the COVID pandemic, eventually arriving at plans to protect the future. She didn't put protect in quotes, but I just did verbally. World Stage and Bruce de Torres on today's News Talk TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Plug in. Website. TNTradio.live Check it out. Today's News Talk Radio. It's the coolest. TNT. You've probably noticed here at State of the Nation, we're like a pit bull with a fixation on America's open border policies. And we've got yet another subject matter expert to discuss with us. Um, this is this is amazing. You know, I'm in a constant state of dissonance as an American, watching the borders wide open, millions of people coming in from 180 countries, aided and abetted by the federal government, using our tax dollars to fund NGOs and media campaigns to make this happen. Literally, the destruction potentially of our country, paid for by you and I. Um, so we see crime rising. We solidify an experienced and expected 100,000 Americans dead from fentanyl poisoning 
and human trafficking running rampant. So joining State of the Nation now to discuss is a former Bush administration official, former Naval Intelligence Officer, and the Bramer Group Chairman and President, Don Bramer. Don, thanks for joining us. What do you make of the open border policy and what's at stake if this vulnerability goes unaddressed? Well, good evening and thanks for having us. You know, the biggest thing at stake is America, America's way of life, and our children. You know, our children are extremely vulnerable to, as you mentioned, you know, more than 100,000 deaths by fentanyl, uh, a, a pandemic that has touched my own family. Uh, also, you know, murder, crime. You know, I think what we're looking at, more than 15,000 uh, registered criminals who have crossed the border just last year alone. So, you know, every city, every neighborhood, you know, whether it's urban America or whether it's, you know, the rural or just the family neighborhoods, it's all at stake right now because anything that is a target to these criminals is something they're going to go through. It, it's parasitic almost. Yeah, Don, um, I agree with everything you just said. One of the things that's so frustrating uh, about it, and, you know, there's so many different facets to why illegal immigration and why a wide open border is such a bad idea. But one of the things that I find most insidious about it is the notion that American culture doesn't exist. And if it does exist, it kind of sucks. So we need to change it. And if you don't want to change it, well, you're a bigot. Uh, and this is the way that is being played on really one particular side of the aisle. But if we're honest, members of both parties are guilty of allowing this border to remain open. And certainly not a lot of people are really kind of getting down and saying, this has got to stop. But you look at every single poll uh, and I mean, we've been talking about it all day. Even Iowa, the number one concern of the, the, the folks of Iowa was the wide open southern border. But it just angers me that they have such a disdain for their own culture, traditions, morals. I mean, all of this stuff that makes us Americans doesn't really mean much to the other side, it, it, it seems. Well, you know, it, so the southern border is extreme crisis. But it's actually our northern border and our southern border. You know, you look at the total numbers of what's coming in. You know, just last year alone, we had 24, 25,000 illegal Chinese immigrants come from the southern border. Uh, I think we're over 6,500 Afghans. We've got 500 Iranians, 600 Syrians. What to me that, you know, where can you see that there can't be, you know, some sort of nefarious or terrorist activity? So while fentanyl, and, and crime is certainly a problem. We've got to look at what's the bigger picture here. And is, are we allowing people to come into this country free who will perform, you know, something worse than we saw in, in Israel in October? Yeah. And, yeah, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. No. And, you know, the thing, you know, we talk about putting caps on, on immigrants, but I think the big thing we need to talk about, it's very simple. It's three simple letters and it's D. You know, we need to deter from coming. But then if they do come, we need to have a policy that deports. And in the meantime, it detains. That's the only way we're going to slow this down. Don't make it easy for immigrants to just hop across the border and think that, it, you know, you can get lost in the system. Mr. Bramer, isn't that what the law says? I mean, every single one of these millions of people that are here, we're up to over 10 million now, probably, if we were to estimate the gotaways over this administration, and we're looking at half a million people every two months. Um, they're all here illegally. Our CBP is simply processing people. Uh, we're filling high schools full of criminals. 
I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to say that in a pejorative way to anyone who has come over looking for a better life, but you're here on a misdemeanor offense and they're now kicking kids out of schools to to house people like this. They're filling the streets. I mean, it's um but is it to back to my original question? Isn't this all illegal in the first place? And why should the American public accept their tax dollars going to NGOs that are facilitating these activities? Well, I think, you know, you're right. We do have laws in place, but we're not enforcing them because what we're doing and what we're seeing this administration do is we're creating an entire generation and a demographic that is going to become dependent on the federal government. So what you're creating is a class of people who become a depend you know depend on social programs and where do they lean on social programs the democratic south so we're creating a society that long term will become dependent on one particular set of politics and then that will create their a maintained balance of power yeah well listen i, I uh we've got to take a we've got to take a real quick break for a headline here but when we get back don i want to ask you about that very subject we are basically creating wards of the state uh, and and I want to I want to address how we fix that, and if Donald Trump's rhetoric about we're going to have the largest deportation platform or program ever, should he get back into office, if that's a reality or just campaign stump speech, we're speaking to Don Bramer. You're watching State of the Nation. We'll be right back after this headline. Today's news talk radio. Now TNT Radio News for TNT. This is James O'Neill. Pakistan has confirmed conducting a series of airstrikes targeting terrorist hideouts in southern Iran, describing the operation as precise and stating it resulted in the neutralization of several militants. This offensive follows Iran's own recent airstrikes against a terrorist group located in Pakistan. David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, and Argentine President Javier Milei have acknowledged their differing views on the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands, as reported by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office on Wednesday. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Okay, welcome back to State of the Nation. On today's News Talk, we're speaking with Don Bramer. Don is a former Bush administration official. He's also a former Naval Intel officer, and he's the chair of the Bramer Group. Uh, Don, thank you for hanging in through the headline. Now, we were talking beforehand. Trump has made it abundantly clear, and obviously, as we touched on, these Iowa voters in the caucuses have made it very clear that the border policy is paramount to them, which means it's a loser for Democrats. That's obvious. Well, Trump is going around saying that, listen, if I get elected, if I'm back in, we're going to have the single largest deportation uh, program uh, in the history of the country. That's going to happen. I, I can already see the lawsuits lining up. I can already see the lawyers for the NGOs lining up. They've probably already started drafting litigation or uh, some kind of uh, you know litigation against this. And there's probably Democrats drafting legislation to prevent it. What do you think? Is that reality or is that just stump talk? Well, you know, no one can foresee the future. But what I can tell you right now is even if you look at people who are Democrats who are looking to rethink the policy on the border you've got 14 house members who have now said hey we'll align we'll vote with you gop because we realize that this is an issue and we live in districts that are along these borders and we have to represent our constituents 
But if you, you know, going back to Trump's administration, if you look at where we were under President Trump to where we are now, as I said, we've seen a 200 or 2,500% increase in illegal immigrants. So we've got to be tough. And that starts with, you know, who is going to be the correct uh, secretary of DHS? Who is going to be the, the correct director? Putting the right people in place who are willing to do the job and, and not go MIA or AWOL whenever time there's a crisis. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that recently, haven't we? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I got to ask, you know, um, I know you were um, active in the 9-11 days and, you know, th that was a, um, a benchmark time for this country. And uh, we had an attack. 3,000 people approximately lost their lives. And um, they then released the Patriot Act on America. And they have since uh, turned that Patriot Act of... <sighs> you know, against the American people. Let's just be frank here. And and the um, annual NDAA has a lot of things slipped into it that are very Patriot Act oriented. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of this sort of civil rights violation and unconstitutional behavior in the name of, you know, keeping uh, national security. So um, like, what is it, how does it feel to you, you know, someone who's been involved in intelligence and, you know, and in combat, you know, um, as it says on your bio, <laughs> on Capitol Hill and in war zones. Um, I mean, where are we at right now with this? Because we've already had a Patriot Act weaponized against us, the NDAA, all this stuff over an attack that led to 3,000 people dying, but we're under a sustained attack right now that's killing 100,000 people a year, and there's no discussion about that factor, or, you know, like you intimated earlier, just sort of the vulnerabilities of an open border. I mean, we've got a national stage, international stage right now that's... um. It has like seven conflicts going at least and and maybe more brewing i mean it just doesn't make sense you know and, and it's sad to say that it doesn't make sense and i i feel that part of this you know over the last few years the america that you know displayed uh strength through power we were a deterrent we were a deterrent across the world and and that kept people in check and i think that deterrent strategy has gone away uh, for whatever social or political agenda that, that we as a country as a whole or politically are, seem to be appearing now, it sends the wrong message to, to the globe, uh, to our partners. And we need to get back to that. You know, if you look at the world that we lived in just four years ago, it was a much different place. And, you know, and while there's no president or no par party politics that you'll ever agree with 100%, we were on a good path. And while you may not like some of the things that, you know, President Trump said, you can always say that the right policies were in place. And right now we don't have those policies in place. And we don't have, you know, I always use the analogy from when we we're growing up of the adult table and the children's table. I don't think right now that a lot of global leaders see uh, America sitting at the adult table. Well, if they do, they see it as the geriatric table with the, uh, you know, with the aids there, helping people put the, uh, the oatmeal in their mouth. I, I just... You uh, <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble, but that's what I see. <laughs> I, I also, I also see Don. I mean, it, 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 this seems, you know, we can say, oh, well, this is a self-inflicted wound. We screwed up at the Southern border. I think a lot of Americans are ticked off for kind of what I was touching on before about it. It's watering down our national identity, but also it seems so planned, which begs the question, is our president compromised? You're talking about world threats. Hell, the, the Houthis 
are firing on ships all out, all throughout the Red Sea right now. Iran is backing them up, and we're doing these little pinprick strikes. I suspect this wouldn't be happening if Trump was in office right now, because I think he would go after Tehran. Uh, he might wipe out the Houthis on his way to Tehran, but I think Tehran would be concerned. The mullahs would say, God, this guy's a wild, he's a wild tiger. We don't know about him. And yet they seem to have no fear whatsoever of Biden. Uh, does that well, strike you as? Well, I mean, you got to look at you know, where this, where this all starts at, you know, uh, whether it is the Houthis, whether it is Hezbollah, whomever Iranian puppet that you're talking about in the region, where do they get their financing? Where do they get their resources? It all goes back to Tehran. Well, you know, guess what, Tehran? You just got a large influx of cash when President Biden walked in the door and put us reversed the Iran deal that was started by Obama. That same deal that President Trump put a freeze on. So now you've you've got you know you've got a lot of new resources that you can funnel out. And and who do you think buys all these bombs, these missiles, and funds these programs? You know, uh, terrorist activities aren't cheap, and they've got to be funded somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Sorry. No, I was just I was just going to say you mentioned the funding that Biden gave them. He gave them hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm old enough to remember pallets full of cash landing in Tehran uh, uh, from an unmarked white cargo uh, plane from the U.S. government. It does seem like for some reason, and I can't put my figure on it, a finger on it, Don, maybe you can. For some reason, the left seems to almost be beholden to these people. What the hell is going on there with Iran? You know, I don't, I don't know if it's that they're beholding, but it, it always feels like it's sometimes it's easier to negotiate. And, and you think that, well, if I give this to you now, maybe you'll remember it later. And, and you know, and, and I think that's what this administration has done. Well, we're going to, we're going to give you this cash because it'll help us get, uh, you know, one of our prisoners back down the road. And sometimes that happens, but in most cases it doesn't. And when you start trading, you know, one person for six, seven high-level terrorists, and that was in you know Obama administration, and now what we see in the Biden administration, it doesn't work out for us, and it always comes back to haunt us. Um, planning and guessing on, on what will happen, you can't do. But I mean, let's be honest: we have an administration that can't even keep itself in place when you have hundreds of hundreds of White House staff, administration officials that are threatening to strike because they don't agree with the president and his views in support of Israel. Yeah. Um, Don, I'm, I'm curious, let's, let's close the circle here on this conversation. We have about a minute left with regards to, you know, everything that you guys are just talking about, circle us back to the border and, you know, what are your thoughts on that? We have a completely open border. Uh, if something bad happens, some sort of black swan event, some sort of other nine 11, um, are we even going to be able to pinpoint with any accuracy who's actually behind it? It seems to me there's a open goal here for anyone that wants to do false flag operations or real terror. I mean, um, bring us back to the border with this regard in our final minute. You know, with the border, it, it is one of our biggest vulnerabilities right now is, is our border. It, I, if anyone was planning to have some kind of nefarious activity, it's the easiest way to get in. And I think, the, sadly, the only thing that'll wake this country up and wake these policies up is if something were to happen. And, and that's a really sad, unfortunate you know, way to think about things. But if you look at the America of 
compared to the America of 912, and we were probably the strongest country in the world. We were strongest people. Sometimes it takes things like that to wake people up, and, and it's, it's, it's a sad state to believe in, but you can live in fantasy world or you can live in reality, and sometimes you need a wake-up call. That's right. Don Bramer, I want to thank you again for joining us. It's been a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you. I hope you'll join us again soon here at State of the Nation. Uh, follow Don over at bramergroup.com. Don, do you have a social media account you want to shout out either? I do. I am on both uh, Instagram and Twitter or X at, uh, at Donald R. Bramer. All right. Don Bramer, thank you for joining us here on State of the Nation at today's News Talk TNT. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days. They haven't drank anything. They're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud. Just absolutely mud. You know, the country has been prolonged for drought so long. It was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution. And we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into the unit and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution. One rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. <laughs> My baby's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Mm. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. Ah, those beans smell heavenly. Mm -hmm. Give mom a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, great idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay. Smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. Critically analyzing national affairs, this is State of the Nation with Steve Hook and Brian McClain on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Yes, we are back on State of the Nation. And you know, one thing that happens when you follow politics a lot, or maybe you follow this show, you start learning new terms and new phrases. One of the, one of the terms that I've learned lately is the Chevron Doctrine. All of a sudden, the Chevron Doctrine is in the news. You may be wondering what the Chevron Doctrine is all about, and that's why we've invited Kara uh, Rollins to join us today to help us break down this new— well, the Chevron Doctrine is not new, but it's now uh, being used in a court of law. Litigation counsel from the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Kara Rollins, joins us. Kara, I'm from New Jersey, and I know that—I think you're a Jersey gal. I know you went to— I know you went to Rutgers, which is pretty close to my house, um, and I've been seeing this on the uh, on the on the telly screens here recently uh, that some fishermen are going after the EPA, uh, and they're trying to say, "Oh, well, this is all part of the Chevron doctrine." But essentially, what it would be would it, it, now you correct me if I'm wrong here, Kara, but it sounds to me like what they're telling these fishermen 
these private guys, they may be charter boat captains. They may just be day fishers that go out and come back and sell their fish or their clams or whatever it is they get. But they're now being told, well, you have to have a, a government agent on board, essentially, to make sure that you're not violating any laws. And that's going to cost you about 700 bucks a day. And, oh, by the way, that's going to destroy your business. So now a lot of these folks with you and my, with, with you, I guess, helping out have gone to court to stop this. Why don't you break down exactly what the case is all about and what the Chevron doctrine actually means? Well, I'll start with the Chevron doctrine. You know, this is actually, I'm, I'm one of those administrative law nerds. It's something I love talking about, though I hate that I have to talk about it. Um, and Chevron was a case that was decided back in the 1980s. And essentially it said that if an agency is if, interpreting an unambiguous or silent statute, it all it has to do when it passes regulations, like have some sort of reasonable interpretation of that statute. And at the time when Chevron was decided, nobody really thought it was that big of a deal. I mean, that was just sort of kind of passing in the night. But over time, as agencies sort of glommed onto this idea of, well, if we just find ambiguity ambiguity or silence in a statute, we sort of get a free pass um, and can do all kinds of things that maybe Congress didn't intend for us to do or maybe Congress is controlled by the other party. So this is another way that we can, uh, you know, sort of get what we want out into the world. Um, it, it really became its own beast. It became distorted. One of the good explanations of this is one of the early defenders of Chevron was Justice Scalia, who's not known for being, you know, a progressive um, by any stretch of the imagination. And certainly in his latter years, really started to repudiate Chevron deference and, and seeing it for what it is of distorting constitutional order. And so happen particularly with our clients is their group of herring fishermen. And so NOAA, which oversees fisheries uh, throughout the country, um, decided that they wanted more data. I mean, this is what it comes down to. The government wanted more data from the fishermen and they couldn't convince Congress to put it in their budget. I mean, that's like the, the simplest explanation here. So instead, what they said was, well, we think the statute's ambiguous and we think it's it's relatively reasonable for us to say the fishermen have to carry these people on their boats and they have to pay for them. And that's what this whole fight is about. And that's you know what I said earlier about the way Chevron distorts things is it makes everybody in the constitutional system bad actors. I mean, certainly agencies can go out and find new powers or extend what they're doing because they they feel empowered to do so. I mean, this has been a fight that's been going on. I think our clients roughly been fighting this rule since 2015. Um, and so when we talk about, oh, you know, Chevron has been around 40 years. Well, my client's been fighting this rule for about a quarter of that, right? That should have some sort of consideration about what is the real problem here. Wow. Huh. So so basically, this is sort of a longstanding uh, set of bureaucracy and policy litigation that provides loopholes for regulatory agencies to do things that may not necessarily be in their purview like requesting all this extra data requesting some mm -hmm. you know a, a guest be um <laughs> on board while the fishermen are trying to do their jobs in this case um what happens um i'll, I'll use positive questioning here what happens when you win this case um does the loophole close or you know what i mean does it set a precedence that americans can benefit from well, I think one of the things that we talked about and certainly was discussed at oral argument yesterday is how Chevron doctrine or Chevron deference, however you want to describe it, 
it really kills the ability to rely on stability in the law, right? Because under this deference regime, we have seen 180 flips from one administration to the next. So how is the average individual supposed to know what the law is if every four years, every eight years, it's going to categorically flip in the other direction? And all of that's deemed reasonable, right? I mean, that that's sort of the problem here. And so we say it's a, res- a reliance-destroying doctrine. It's not really workable. Um, you know, if I asked you what ambiguity means, um, if I asked, I mean, even the justice has sort of struggled with this yesterday, you know, how ambiguous is ambiguous enough to allow this to be the case? And one of the things that I think some of your listeners and viewers might be interested in is like, at the end of the day, a lot of this is based on this fiction that when Congress leaves ambiguities in statutes or it leaves silences, it's implicitly delegating the power to the agency, as opposed to just like, Congress didn't consider it, or maybe Congress considered it and they specifically left it out. And that's one of the things that we argue here is, you know, in some of the other fisheries, Congress specifically permitted this and put caps on how much it could cost, right? So it seems odd that where Congress was explicit in one area, we're going to imply uh, that they had the power to do it in some other area to much worse effect and to fishermen that tend to be small businesses as opposed to sort of like what we would say are sort of the wealthier fisheries that we think of in Alaska, um, you know, crab fisheries, those types of things. And so that's all sort of based on this this farce of what Congress meant when it was being ambiguous to do something. And I think that what became clear over time and certainly as statutory interpretation has changed in the courts and they really are now looking at and engaging the text um, that maybe that fiction is is exactly what it is, and it should be left behind. <laughs> you know, I, I you know, I, all I can all I can think of is back in the days of the the former Soviet Union, every single Soviet ship had uh, basically a propaganda officer on board to make sure that you and your crew were straight with the Communist Party. And that sounds like what we are, we are, I mean, who would have thought that a bureaucratic regulatory agency would ever be weaponized against somebody? I mean, it seems to be rather naive that the Congress didn't figure out, no wonder it flips every four years or whenever a new senator or congressman or a new head of some agency comes into power. It's being weaponized against people. And you said it, it's taking Americans and making them all basically prove that you've uh you're innocent by taking us on oh and by the way you're gonna pay for the fact that you have to prove uh approve it how do you think uh scotus is gonna i mean i know that it's we're one day in here but are you getting any indicators on how the justices are hearing this and any any justice in particular that is raising any pertinent questions um you know i think there's a lot of thoughtful questions yesterday it's hard to to predict, you know, there's there's nine justices with nine different views. I think there are some themes that came out that, you know, make us hopeful that there's there's going to be something helpful for our client at the end of the day when the court makes its decision. One of the things Justice Gorsuch raised was like Chevron doctrine has obviously been applied in this case for these fishermen, but it's also been applied in immigration cases and veterans benefit cases. That was another case NCLA had. It was a veterans benefit denial. Uh, social security cases. And one of the things that Justice Gorsuch raises this issue with Chevron is, is that in all these instances where people are like the least powerful or they can't afford lobbyists and, you know, 
is Chevron is still being held against them. It's not just in this enforcement context or this business regulatory context. It shows up in pretty much everything. It pervades the entire system of government in many ways. And so, you know, that sort of thoughtful questioning and realizing that it's it's not so much a David and Goliath issue as it is a distortion of powers issue. And what we hope comes out of this is, you know, we, we would love a win, um, but we think that the, the court is seeing it as this distortion of power and how do we get back to the balance that the constitution delineates. And I think that that was something that folks have started to realize more and more um, when looking at this issue and seeing all the ways it it just distorts the entire process. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kara, you know, this. if I zoom out a little bit, you know, and I look at the Supreme Court on a timeline that's a little bit more zoomed out, I look back to, what was that, last May, uh, Sackett versus EPA. Um, and there was also some uh, question about the ATF this year, another regulatory uh, governmental body which uh, attempted to make um, pistol braces in uh, an illegal item, which would have de facto made approximately 40 million Americans who have purchased those things uh, completely legally into overnight felons. And the Supreme Court's been pretty good about saying, hey, you're a regulatory agency. Even some of the lower courts have been pretty good about this and saying, um, yeah, you're a regulatory agency. You don't actually have the ability to write law um, that affects people. So um, if if this one goes well, does that sort of further chip away at sort of this larger concept of government regulatory bodies um, infringing on people's rights? I think so. I mean, I think what you're seeing is they're on some level acting with impunity because they think or they know they'll get away with it, right? I mean, certainly that's what Chevron does. Chevron says, if we get to the point that the statute is silent or ambiguous, thumb on the scale for the government. And we call that step one versus step two, these step two cases, which is, is it reasonable? Is what the agency did reasonable? And sometimes it's described as merely plausible, which I mean, we can all you know trip over that. It's such a low threshold. Um, but this idea that once you get there, the government wins like 90% of the time at that point. I mean, that's just like a statistical anomaly. And certainly as an attorney that practices in this area and regularly deals with regulated entities, I have had to say to clients, hey, if they invoke Chevron, the likelihood that we will lose is nearly 100%. And we shouldn't lose, right? Because we're right on the facts. We have the better read of the law or, or what have you. But that's the distortion that's occurring. It doesn't matter that you have the better reading of the statute. It's that the agency's reading of the statute is reasonable in this these circumstances. And so I think that what it does, it's going to be a return to fairness. I mean, when I talk to, you know, people who aren't involved in the law, you know, my mom, right, uh, who's also a good Jersey girl. <laughs> um, and I, I talk about this, they're, they're left with this feeling of like, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem fair that the most powerful litigator in the country gets to walk into court and say, well, this is, you know, silent or ambiguous and... Uh, we just think we we've come up with a reasonable interpretation of that, and therefore we win. I mean, that doesn't comport with any sense of logic or a sense of fundamental fairness. And that's why a lot of what we talk about is that this raises not just sort of separation of powers issues, but due process concerns, the right to a fair trial before a fair judge, right? When the judge has to defer to the agency instead of saying what the law is, says, well, I have to say what the law is, and that is what the agency says it is. Like there's there's no fairness. I mean, you should walk in a court and something should be 
in equipoise 50-50. Um, and now we, we know it's like 90-10. And that's something that we hope gets corrected. Well, the very fact that uh, SCOTUS would take the case up has to has to kind of brighten your hopes a little bit, I would think. I mean, it does seem uh, that w- what happens here is that when they can't get something done, you know, through the legislative norms, uh, and we saw this with uh, the attempted cap and trade deal too, that sometimes these agencies are in fact weaponized. And you don't, as you mentioned, your mother can figure it out. Most people with common sense can determine what's fair and what's unfair. And of course, you also touched on, well, you know, this is so ambiguous that it flips every few years. There's a new election cycle and it flips. So is that the reason SCOTUS has taken this up? And is this going to be the final nail in the coffin for this? Or will they just find a new way of using some regulatory agency or some environmental protection agency, whatever it may be, whatever agency it is, three letters of your choice? Uh, are they going to come back at it with a different approach? I mean, we certainly hope it's the knockout blow for Chevron deference. And I think one of the things that came up during the argument yesterday is like the handful of times and like sort of the intervening 40 years where the court has looked at Chevron, they've like added, it started as a two-step process. Now it's got a step zero. It's got a step one and a half. It's like, I, I describe it as a, like the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, vehicle, right? They just keep tacking things on and hope it holds when you could just rent a U-Haul, right? Like you could simplify this and move forward. And the simple answer is get rid of Chevron and go back and let judges judge, let the legislature legislate and let the executive branch enforce the laws. And that's what we think is the ultimate outcome if, you know, if we prevail and if Chevron deference is is done away with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really, uh, like you said, I think any this is, does not need to be uh, involved with identity politics whatsoever. This is the sort of thing that I think most common sense Americans can get behind. Let me ask you this. We've got about a couple minutes left here. How badly does this affect the fishermen out there? What are they going through? How does this hurt them? I mean, I, I always say, you know, this is sort of an Oscar winning case. You know, for those of you who saw CODA, there's an entire subplot about monitors on boats and how it's going to destroy fishermen. Um, one of the things that, you know, my client had put us on to is that that $700 a day, generally speaking, that's more than the people working the boat, the actual fishermen make per day, right? Like that's disturbing that the government agency that they're paying for is making more money than the, the Americans who are out doing the hard work. And so, you know, that's just an overall concern. It eats into profits. We anticipate that $700 a day is 20% of the profits of the boat over the course of the year. That money comes from somewhere. You know, that comes off of people's tables. It comes off of the communities they live in. Uh, It stops businesses from expanding. So in this case, you know, it is, it's sort of a do or die case for them. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. And, and um, briefly, we're almost out of time. If you can be brief with this, what does the government get out of get out of it? Where does this money that's leaving American, you know, blue collar workers tables going? They get more data they're interested in, right? I mean, that's that's it. Is like they already have other observers that can go on a boats and do the things that we need to do to collect data to make sure the fish are healthy and that we're not overfishing. This is just like their wish list. And so it's the fishermen paying for the government's wish list that it can't convince Congress to pay for. And, and, you know, where's that money going? Who knows? Ridiculous. So ridiculous. Kara Rollins, I want to thank you for your work, what you're doing for yeah, America really. on this case, and for joining us here at State of the Nation. We really appreciate you, and we'll look forward to having you back for 
Chernobyl soon here at State of the Nation. Stay tuned because the Misty Winston show is coming up next. You don't want to miss it. TNT is live 24-7. Follow us on the Twitters. This is State of the Nation signing out.